Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We have a very special announcement and episode here. Well, in this episode, Chris McKinney, who is a host of Biblical World, and I co-host an episode with Amy Ballag of Regis University. And Amy is not only going to be interviewed in this episode, but she's also joining the Biblical World podcast as a co-host. So we're really thrilled to have her uh, joining us, and she's going to bring a lot of her expertise to this podcast, and so we're excited for that. So I hope you enjoy not only this episode, but also uh, the episodes to come with Amy uh, as a co-host on the show. So thanks so much for listening, and welcome, Amy. Thanks to all of you who've supported us or given us reviews. If you'd like to do that, please do so. It always helps people find us and know about what we're doing here. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. Today is a uh, as a first, actually, where myself, Chris McKinney, and Matt Lynch are co-hosting a crossover podcast between OnScript and Biblical World. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing pretty well, Chris. Thanks. It's fun to do this. Yeah, it's really fun. We've been working together on these things kind of behind the scenes, so it's kind of cool to, to come together on this one. And we have an amazing episode today. We're joined by Amy Balag of Regis University, uh, and she has a, an amazing book, really, I would say, a bit controversial and very interesting, called Moses as an Idol. And Amy, what, what led you to this thesis? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, your background to where you came up with this idea. And if you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, where, where you teach and, and what you do, that'd be great. All right. Well, that's a lot to answer as the first question, but I'll see where I can start. <laughs> So I am currently the lead lecturer for the humanities at Regis University in the School for Professional Advancement here in Denver, Colorado. And I teach broadly in religious studies, but my area of specialization is actually Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East. So I did my PhD work at the University of Denver and Iliff School of Theology in the joint doctoral program, which is where I was sort of got this idea for my book or what would become my first book. And um, it was really an idea that wouldn't let me go. I'd like to say that it was by choice, but it just kind of kept coming back around as being something that I needed to continue to develop. And over the years of coursework and all that stuff, I just kept getting new insights and new nuances, um, usually at inopportune moments. So it just kind of happened that way. So it became my dissertation, and then I revised it into a book, which was published in 2018, um, called Moses Among the Idols, Mediators of the Divine in the Ancient Near East. Um, so the genesis of the project is that um, I was taking a class on Exodus, my first term as a PhD student. And um, so over the summer, I had done a lot of reading around because I figured it's the last summer for a while to read what I want. So I read a lot of stuff in ancient Near East and came across um, actually the Egyptian opening of the mouth ritual. Um, and if you were to Google that, you'd probably find all sorts of cool images of priests doing something to a coffin using what looks like a stick that kind of looks like a snake. Um, And it's a really cool ritual. And so coming upon Exodus, um, I found this weird little verse. Um, I was translating from Hebrew, which is how I noticed it, because English translations aren't done this way. Um, And so in a couple places in Exodus 6, Moses says that he is uncircumcised of lips. And that's a really weird, right? (laughs) That's a really weird image. Um, And eventually, God responds to this by saying, look, I've made you God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your prophet. And in the history of interpretation, everybody just kind of skims past that and doesn't really answer what in the world that means. And so I wanted to answer that because it bothered me. Um, for for a good eight years, it bothered me <laughs> while I worked on the project and, and wrote. Yeah, uncircumcised lips. That's a when you think about it, a really odd term. I, I think you know, for me, when you hear the term uncircumcised, it's so divorced from its uh, 
actual grisly <laughs> connotations of what of what it means in the context of daily life for Philistines and Israelites and, and all of that procedure and process. But because it's been so, you know, made a metaphor as we have in uh, the Hebrew Bible that you kind of just read past it, but you're right. That's a, that is an odd description for, for Moses. I hadn't really thought about that much. Yeah. And it really is. If you look at the biblical usage of the term, it really is derogatory and it's usually used against people who are, are actively working against the Abrahamic covenant. Um, So the idea of the people of Abraham having their own land, being successful in terms of, you know, the being fruitful and multiply piece. So what I think he's doing is calling attention to the fact that he is not only not effective at what he's being called to do, but he's actually causing damage. And both of these occurrences happen after Mm -hmm. the bricks without straw episode. So he's really... You know, he's hesitant in his language in the burning bush episode. There's, I think it's seven times where he basically tells God no, because he's not equipped or he's not properly who he should be in order to take this on. Um, and then you have the the bricks without straw, which is kind of evidence of Moses's case, right? Because it makes things so much worse for everybody. And so he ups his language and he says like, look, I'm, he uses a derogatory term on himself, right? Um, I'm completely invalid here. I'm completely mm. working against uh, what it is you hope for these people. Well, th- that narrative sequence for you is really important in your study. Um, mm. And it's something I hadn't really fully thought through before. So you have the burning bush episode where Moses encounters God, angel, uh, the Malach Adonai at the bush. Right. And he's given this promise of divine presence there. And, and he goes back as he said to the people, he goes before Pharaoh, um, that doesn't go so hot. And then the oppression is intensified after that. And then he goes back and he gets, you know, what in standard interpretations is just a sort of reassurance. Yeah, I'm with you in this. So that's how I typically read it. And you have an alternative reading. So maybe unpack a little bit, like when he goes back to God and, and talks with him that second dialogue, what's at stake there? Yeah, so that, that second dialogue in Exodus 6, I, I mean, I know exactly what you said, and people generally think of it as a reassurance of what happened at the burning bush. But what I end up arguing in one of my chapters is that the burning bush is actually insignificant for the change that Moses needs to undergo, and that Moses knows that. But Yahweh is sort of a little bit hesitant to do what needs to be done for whatever reason, right? I mean, we don't aren't given much reasons of, of God's activities in Exodus. But in chapter six, it really is, there's, God tries to reassure Moses and Moses says, no, <laughs> this isn't going to work no matter what you say, right? There's something that needs to be done to me as a person, as a leader in order for this to work. Um, and then you get this odd break because all of a sudden the editor puts in the genealogy of Moses. And it's actually one of the more robust genealogies we have because it's not just his line, it's his extended family as well. So there's a a lot of care given all of a sudden to who this guy is biologically. Mm -hmm. And that actually, I think, works toward probably something I'm sure we'll talk about soon, is that I think this is construing what happens in 7-1 when God says, look, I've made you God to Pharaoh as a rebirth of sorts. Because you would expect to find a genealogy somewhere in chapter two where Moses is actually born. Yeah, I thought that was a really helpful narrative insight there. I'm wondering if we could step back from from the narrative of Exodus now. So the idea of being needing to be reborn, to have his lips circumcised. In your book, you're hearing these against the backdrop of certain Mesopotamian rituals and Egyptian rituals as well. So maybe if we could shift gears to talk about those rituals that you're reading in the background. Do you want to just introduce listeners to some of the important rituals that you're hearing echoing in the background of this story? Uh, absolutely. So, um, as I mentioned, I initially got the idea for this comparison in, by looking at Egyptian materials and learning about the Egyptian opening of the mouth ceremony. And I d- ultimately decided in the book to not focus on that, but to kind of give a nod to it that a, a future person, uh, perhaps even myself, could also compare Moses to that ritual. 
Um, and I decided to go in the direction of the Mesopotamian ritual um, for a couple different reasons. Um, but the Egyptian ritual is performed on the deceased. So usually elite people um, in, in later periods, it became a bit more popular. Um, but this was basically to enable the deceased to be able to eat, drink, commune with the gods in the afterlife. So even though I found the imagery to be similar, I didn't really find the, the context to have much overlap because Moses isn't deceased, right? He's like in the book, he's an alive person um, and it serves a certain function. Like it's not just for him to have a nice afterlife. Uh, it's very much concerned about his life in the real world. So the best analogy that I found was the Babylonian opening of the mouth and purification of the mouth ritual, which performed on what we would call idols. So these, um, I of course needed to know in a lot more depth in order to make that comparison. So I got incredibly familiar with the rituals surrounding how an idol becomes an idol and the language that's used to describe them and to really call the divine presence into what we would consider a physical object. And you'll probably notice that I'm using the language we consider a lot because from an ancient Mesopotamian perspective, a divine statue, an idol, is never actually just an object. It's always in, imbued with divinity um, from the time it's wood in a tree. So there's never a time where it's not a god. Um, and so it's a very different framework than we're used to because in the West we've inherited the Bible's anti-idol rhetoric. Um, I know, Matt, you work in Isaiah, and there's a lot there about the idols being just like stupid fabrications, right? They're, they're just nothing, right? They're just um, a knickknack, basically, um, that people give too much credit for. But I don't think that's how idols were conceived at all. Um, it's a misunderstanding and, um, at worst, a misrepresentation of what they were. So I think I really needed to, and I spent half the book, really unpacking what an idol is and how it functions. Because only then can you understand what the biblical authors are trying to do with Moses and representing him that way. So it's it's really interesting to me to think about this concept of an idol. And, you know, this is an area that I think is 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 hard for us. You kind of alluded to that, Amy, at being in the West and living with the weight of paganism and it's bad and idols are are wrong and evil. And and again, I hope people aren't thinking I'm a heretic here. That's clearly what the Bible does indicate and say. But the problem that I think you're alluding to is we don't even know really what an idol is from a biblical perspective or from an ancient Near Eastern perspective. And maybe it means sort of different things in different places like Egypt and Mesopotamia and Canaan and may change a bit over time. And so you have to kind of understand what it is and then what the Bible is kind of responding to, to really get that nuance. And then there's a bigger thing where, uh, and I just coming at it from, uh, you know, the inkling perspective, that really the big problem in our age isn't isn't really idols and paganism, it's, it's more of secular humanism. Uh, so what I really found fascinating about this entire thesis is um, the role myth and the way we can think about this this, these deeper lines of thought that you could find across the board in these different ancient Near Eastern cultures, and you focused on Mesopotamia as a way of, of really getting behind the biblical text and thinking about it in that thought world of how they would think about and perceive uh, these idols. And so I guess as a, as a question, and maybe as a way of kind of uh, enumerating more on what you just, what you just uh, explained, do you see any differences in the way that these different ancient Near Eastern cultures think about idols? I mean, you focused on Mesopotamia, and I, I don't want you to take you mm -hmm. down. Like, we, we're not going to go to Egypt and all these other places, but are they all kind of like, is it monolithic that everyone kind of thinks these are the same, uh, or are they? Or are there differences? Um, that's hard to answer because the information we have is so spotty. And honestly, the ritual texts mm -hmm. that I ended up studying weren't even published until 2001. So they've been underground for who knows how long, right? And so it's it's one of those classic examples where because of archaeology, we now know a lot more 
than we did even just a few years ago. So it's, it's really unclear as well in the ancient world who knew what, because uh, especially when it comes to the biblical authors, because they uh, sort of as a whole, if I could lump them all together, um, which I generally don't do, but they seem to not understand the rituals and incantations that are involved in making an idol. There's an art historian uh, named Zainab Barani who has, uh, she has, from an art historical perspective, done a lot of work on images in Mesopotamia. And she has this, I think, really important insight that the physical object is always connected to action and to word. So ritual and incantation in this case is really important to understanding the image. But you wouldn't know that unless you knew the ritual world of these folks. Right. And so if the biblical authors are, say, happen to be plopped down in the middle of Babylon, uh, which we think is the case, they would see all this stuff happening, but they wouldn't understand the, the entire life behind it. Right. And so they're kind of working from partial information. And then whatever form of idol worship they experienced and were fighting against while in Canaan, it's also very vague. But if it's anything like the Mesopotamians, then there's something they're fighting against there, too because they're not seeing these rituals as effective. I think that's a really good point that you allude to in the lack of evidence. Like, and also I just think it's cool when we think about why, I mean, like why, why I love archeology, span why I love the study of the ancient Near East is we can keep kind of going over the biblical text over and over again and without any new information. And that's sort of the, the area of biblical studies, develop new theories to interpret them. But what's great about archeology span is there's new stuff all the time. And, but I think what you said is we're, we're always kind of left with these questions that have a little bit of new evidence and we're trying to incorporate it. And in Mesopotamia, thankfully, we do have some texts, but we don't have hardly anything in, in Canaan, either from the Middle Bronze, Late Bronze, or even really uh, the Iron Age that lets us know about what Canaanite religion and cult would have been within Canaan itself. Now, of course, we have Ugarit, which is on the sort of northern edge of this reality. And this is just uh, something we've talked about in the podcast before about why something like a hot sore archive, uh, which is sort of the holy grail for bronze and Iron Age archaeologists excavating in Israel, why it would be so significant. Because it might have cuneiform texts written by local Canaanites that, pres- that, that describe these types of of rituals that you could then compare and contrast with what you've done in uh, in Mesopotamia. So I think it, on the one hand, it's it shows you how exciting this world is, but it also can kind of show you like, well, man, I wish we had more, <laughs> wish we had more information to be able to to really get into it. So uh, it's always that catch twenty two. Yeah, and, and we do have fragments of this um, of the Miss P ritual from across Mesopotamia. Um, so we know that it was it had a longevity of at least 2,000 years um, and that it was spread around. And so you could imagine in different places it took on different flavors. And the, the two recensions that we have that are most complete are the Babylonian and the Nineveh ones. Um, and their distance, the tablets themselves, uh, not necessarily the ritual, have a distance of about 200 years between them. And, um, and the Babylonian one is almost complete. I actually had the privilege of going to the British Museum and holding it. And um, man, was that an experience. Mm, cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there's just, there's details about these tablets that um, I kind of note in the intro, but aren't really well known. It was actually like um, the size of your hand, right? So you could imagine the priest actually holding it and referring to it while he's doing stuff. Um, mm. It was ergonomic like it was actually curved on one side on the back side so that it could fit in your palm nicely and then the clay was like Hmm. i don't know what it was about the clay source but it had almost like a really subtle like glittering effect like there was some kind of inclusion material that was included in the clay that was like i don't know just like high quality and so you could really see not just you know the the handwriting but you could see that even the material itself was really thought through and really cared Hmm. for and yeah, it's just, it was something else. <laughs> so they didn't take it lightly. So you think the uh, the scribe or the, the person who who produced the, the tablet sprinkled glitter on it? <laughs> no, I think it was something, I think it was a mineral that was in the clay source <laughs> because it, you could even see it where it was broken, it. Uh, that it was 
some just some high quality mm-hmm. clay that they had somewhere. I wish I knew more about that kind of stuff. So I feel like somebody needs to go test that tablet. Well, this this is exactly mm. the kind of thing that um, it, it just shows you, again, if we go back to this idea of what we have and what we don't have, mm-hmm. Mesopotamia, for, for our listeners, is an absolute treasure trove of, of information, of texts. And we have some of those that exist in places like the British Museum and others that are these huge repositories. But its accessibility over the last century has been <laughs> missed. Spotty. And yeah. so it's spotty at best. <laughs> but what ends up happening in like a place like Israel or Jordan or even to a lesser extent Egypt is you develop all these new methods like like what you just described about being able to trace where that pottery or that clay is that's going to form the, you know, this tablet. We do it all the time in the archaeology of Canaan or Israel to see what where the pottery is from. We can trace where its origins are through what we call Petrography. Now, all we're doing is really trying to find the origins of it, you know, where it came from, and this can help us with trade. But you could do basically the same thing if you would have researchers and the ability to access it to answer this exact question, uh, because it is a very interesting one. You know, would they have chosen specific clay with a specific type of mixture to record these incantations on, to record this ritual, as opposed to just a, you know, a regular administrative text? Uh, something I never even thought about, but you know, it's because the the world of Mesopotamian archaeology is a lot less um, active, uh, at least in field excavations, than it has been in other parts of the world. So it's a really interesting point. Yeah, and the issue of accessibility with this ritual goes way back too. I'm back to my my work on Moses because so this was kind of a I guess not really funny, but sort of funny moment where at the end of the Babylonian recension, there's actually a warning that if the uninitiated reads this, it's taboo against Marduk. And so it's kind of like, can you put the warning in the beginning before I start reading this thing? <laughs> because it's it's a little unsettling, right? <laughs> that this ancient God is going to come after me. It feels like something out of poltergeist. But so that kind of like helps us understand the context of the biblical authors, right? That they they couldn't have actually known this ritual, um, but it was a famous ritual and parts of it occurred in public. So it's not like they're sitting with these texts and deciding how they can make allusions, right, to make their argument. They're kind of understand it from a pop culture perspective and they're coming at it from that angle. And that's if they know of it at all, right? And so there's something that they're they're doing but not doing there. And they're definitely not sitting down with these texts. Amy, I'm wondering if you could, uh, just for our listeners quickly summarize the ritual itself. So um, how is it that this material moves from being idle material, I-D-L-E, to an idol, I-D-O-L, as you put it in your book? What is that ritual transformation process like? And then I'd like to hear um, us move back to talk about Moses and the implications. Okay, good. Um, So throughout this process, the idol is never called anything other than a god. It's never referred to as the statue or the wood or anything like that. And so that's something I just want to preface before I talk about the ritual itself, because it helps us, I think, understand where they're coming from. So in addition to the ritual, we have a lot of sort of surrounding texts that help us understand how idols are made. Like we do have letters between Ashurbanipal and Esarhaddon, uh, which were both kings of Mesopotamia, to their priests in back and forth. And so we kind of understand the dialogue that happened around these. But in terms of the ritual itself, it, it begins in the house of the craftsmen. So even within the ritual, we start off with an acknowledgement that it's a made thing, right? Nobody disputes that. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. the artisans are roped into the ceremony as being and really an integral part of it. But the integral part is that they actually deny their involvement in its fabrication. They attribute it to the creator god Ea, and they are they're at some point, um, and it's not real. They don't really chop off their hands, um, but they ceremonious, ceremoniously use a wooden knife to chop off their hands, and then their tools are drowned in the river. So that's that's part of the ceremony. But it starts so it starts off in the craftsman's house, and then the specialized priest known as the Ashipu, who is interestingly enough also an exorcist. And I, I don't really know what to make of that fact yet. That's something that's still lingering in my brain um, of how the exorcist also does the idol work. But that's how it is. And so he's the specially trained priest of a certain class that then takes it from the craftsman shop and 
parades it through town um, into the garden of, in this case, Marduk. Um, so this is the idol of Marduk that's being initiated. And there's a bunch of stuff that happens in the garden. Um, the ceremony is actually carried out over two days where the idol is set on a reed mat. Um, there's a lot of reeds in this. There's a lot of plant material that's used, um, a lot of sacred language connected to plants. This actually launched me into another line of research where I'm looking at the sacredness of natural materials, but that's another story. So a lot of this happens in the garden and there's a lot of nature stuff that's happening. The nighttime is the most important because there's a connection in ancient Babylonian religion with gods and the celestial realm. So nighttime is like the prime time for like divine activity. And so this is where a lot of what we would consider like almost magic happens. Like the, the idol's mouth is washed regularly, um, repeatedly. I don't remember how many times, um, but I mean, it's a good like dozen times at least um, that the idol's mouth is washed. And then eventually it's paraded into the actual temple where it's going to reside. And again, like there's the opportunity that the public may have seen some of these elements, but a lot of them happen in secret. And so you have the ritual text, which is kind of connected to or encoded into incantation texts. And so you get these poetic descriptions of what's happening. And that's really where the theology comes out, is in these incantation texts. And thankfully, we have some of them, or at least fragments of some of them. But you really see the rationale there and what's happening on a cosmic level as the officiant really calls the divine into the moment to initiate the statue into its service. And then it's eventually set up in its temple where then it's taken care of for the rest of its life in a certain way. I have just a, a like a, a side mm -hmm. question here, and then I would definitely like to go back to see how this connects with Moses. In Egypt, you know, when you have these idols, there's a similar process mm -hmm. of, of clothing and being cared for, but they also will regularly go on parade, you know, which is why we have the solar barks and all these other elements that are carrying them around and uh, some have pointed to, you know, some similarities between this and the, and the Ark of the Covenant and things along those lines. Uh, just as a, for my own benefit, one, once idols were placed in Mesopotamian temples, uh, did they move around other than being stolen by some invader? Did they, was that part of their religious process or were they just static? You know, they actually do travel. Um, interestingly enough, we have letters, and again, in those letters back and forth, we do have letters that say this idol is going to be in this place at a certain time. And there's actually a letter, um, I forget who it's between, but where there's a scheduling conflict. There's a ritual, a ritual that the king is supposed to do for the <laughs> idol on that day. And the priest has to write him and say, oh, I'm sorry, it's out of town. Because it is. Um, and so, and that's where, you know, there's an interface between the exiles, um, the exilic Judean community, and the, um, the ritual where Marduk is paraded around town. So he does, he does really go on parade. And part of that ritual is going out to what's basically his summer home and having a party with all, the, all of the local gods where they're coming in from, you know, other cities in Mesopotamia. And they, they basically meet to decide the fate of the lands for the next year. And then they go back, all go right. back home. But yeah, behind all of this stuff, you start to see the human activity, right? Because obviously to us, right, the statue isn't doing it. It's his entourage of humans that are meeting. Right. And so you start to see like this is sure. a, a magical thing, like it's a religious political thing that's happening. Right. And so this this one that I think you're you're, you're mentioning, this is the Ekitu festival. I think I I think I got that's the one that's yeah, in the Babylon. Right. Yeah. And so and this is the this is the time they recite the Enuma Elish. So this is what you're saying mm -hmm. is, is this experience of seeing that and kind of understanding it. And I'm talking about from the Judahite now becoming Judean perspective mm -hmm. It's sort of like sinking into a pop cultural element of their brain and they're seeing this as something that's different and yet they're attaching something to how they're going to retell the story in the story of the Exodus and the story of Moses and how they're bringing that element in to perhaps an already an existing story. Is that Would that be a way of characterizing it correctly? Yeah, I think, and that's something I bring up in one of my chapters is that I think this really is the interface where Moses as idol becomes very important to the authors, some of the authors, and then redactors, because, and that's like a whole source critical mess that we probably won't get into, but I think that's an important historical moment, and whether or not authors are making this argument in different time periods is 
maybe something that actually happened, right? Like, I don't think the argument that I make is limited to the Babylonian exile, but I do think that is a prime moment where that argument could be made, right? And so um, I really flesh that out in the book, but essentially what I think is happening is that, so the first 12 days of the month of Nisan, in, which is in the springtime, is the Babylonian New Year. And so it was this 12-day ritual of bringing, again, that one I mentioned, of like bringing out Marduk, letting his idol see what is going on in the city. And he basically takes it all in and he judges the city accordingly. And so there's a lot of pop, pomp and circumstance around this, right? Um, if you read some of the texts that describe it, there's like, you know, jewel-laden chariots that he's put in. The priests and the king like usher him out. Like it really is a sight to behold. Like I have a feeling that the entire city probably shut down that day because people were wanting to see it, right? And there's, a, and if you look at the mm. architecture of the city, there's a clear route that it would take every year to go out to his summer home. So everybody kind of knew this, right? But you can imagine if you are new to this and you're just seeing it and you don't know all of the other stuff that happened behind the scenes, you'd be skeptical right about this thing and so i think that's what's happening and then after yes. this festival ends two days later on the 14th of nisan is when passover begins so commemorating moses and the exodus mm. from egypt and i don't think that's a coincidence mm. doesn't seem like one no something tells me so so amy talk about this transformation that moses undergoes and how you're reading that so uh in exodus 410 he's described as heavy mm-hmm. of lips which is a curious phrase, and as you point out, and then also he's uncircumcised of lips in chapter 6, verses, I think, 12 and 30. And then God does something to him, presumably. So, what is the transformation that's happening, and and what's the significance of that? Yeah, I had to wrestle with that for a while, because we have so much about the Mesopotamian mechanism for an idol becoming an idol, but we have zero here in Exodus. And I really think that the concern isn't how God does it, but that he does it. It's not how mm-hmm. Moses' status changed, it's that it actually does. And it's no light thing for him to become God to Pharaoh, because Pharaoh is the God king. Like, he is God in the land. And so to just be made more than that is exactly what Moses needs at this moment, because he's not succeeding. And so I think what's happening is... Um, with the language of the mouth is that Moses is kind of like building his metaphors in a way. So one of the things I had to break down was the idea that he's referring to something literal because there's been a couple strains of tradition um, around this one being that he has some kind of physical disability. Like maybe he stutters. Um, That's a big one. Or there's just something wrong where he's, there's something like physically wrong with his mouth. Right. Um, Another one is that, he has been in Midian for too long and he's kind of forgotten his languages. So he doesn't actively like know his Egyptian or know his Hebrew to be able to even talk to people, which doesn't seem entirely realistic given that he talks. He does talk, right? Um, and then the third was that he's just not eloquent. Um, so people are kind of seeing like, oh, well, these are metaphors for those kinds of things. Um, there's been some work done with even looking at Mesopotamian medical texts to try to say that, you know, he was disabled somehow or had some kind of illness. But I think it's just missing the metaphor, honestly. And I did all the linguistic work of breaking that stuff down in the book, um, so I won't go into it here. And then the uncircumcised stuff just really tells me that there's, again, something that he's feeling that is a legitimate lack. This isn't just him saying like, oh, I can't do it, I'm nervous, right? Like, this is something that he really sees as a lack. So we kind of behold in 7.1, Yahweh addresses that when he says, see, I have made you God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother will be your prophet. And then there's a couple more verses where they're sort of talking through this mission again. And then the very next thing that happens is the 10 plagues. And so it's very clear we go from bricks without straw, right, where Moses is completely powerless and actually quite the opposite. He's actually causing damage here. And then we have this interlude in chapter six. And then in chapter seven, it's like, bam, he is the most effective thing on the planet. He is outdoing Pharaoh at every turn. Pharaoh is really at the end, just a broken person, um, even if for only like a minute, right? Because he's quickly gets back up and gets nasty again, but he becomes that God to Pharaoh. Could Could I ask you a question? I think this is really interesting. I mean, obviously anyone reading the text can see 
a difference between the beginning of Exodus six, like in Moses's ability, and then starting Exodus seven, mm-hmm. he's Superman. And, and then Aaron kind of sloughs off even in the narrative where Aaron's not even referred to anymore after that whole deal. So I think it's uh, the question. I think ultimately your book is is answering the question why that is. And the answer you point to is Exodus um, Exodus six and the beginning of Exodus seven. And I think it's a really interesting thesis. Um, just a, a couple like comments about like the supernatural slash, you know, spiritual realm here, because you alluded to seeing Pharaoh as a divine being. And of course, that's part of Egyptian, you know, theology. And of course, that's part of, I would assume, you know, the Mesopotamians would have understood that as well. And of course, Israel would have understand Pharaoh as the, you know, the divine incarnate Horus while he's alive. Are you assuming that we should read that into the text? And if so, in other words, that the biblical author is wanting us to know that, does that mean that an uncircumcised lips uh, gives Aaron and Moses, you know, additional ability uh, to then actually carry out the miracles, uh, the, the signs of serpents that eat the other serpents through through Aaron's staff? Is that is that the, and I kind of, I mean, I, I'll let you answer, but this sort of really makes sense because they were given that ability before, they don't use it, and then here in Exodus 7, now they're using it, now they're more powerful, and it's sort of like, uh, Moses and Pharaoh are now on the same on the same level. Uh, it, would you say that that's kind of what you're mm-hmm. going? Because a lot of people are like, okay, how are they even able to to do this? I'm talking about the Egyptian magicians. You know, who who's giving them that power? Is kind of what's like like lying behind the scenes? Do you think this helps answer that question? I think so, and I think it's worth noting that all of the ancient Near Eastern cultures, it's really important for their leaders to be considered either divine or to have divine like qualities. And you see that consistently in Egypt where Pharaoh is a god. Um, in Mesopotamia, it, it depends on the period. Sometimes the king is god, sometimes he just has godlike attributes. Um, and then even like later in Greco-Roman stuff, you see that as well. So it would be odd for Moses to not have godlike attributes um, in the ancient world. So that really is Im- mm. important here um, in terms of the background. But I think to to say that he's not just God equal to Pharaoh, he's the God of Pharaoh, is to say like he's above this. And then of course that immediately is enacted in the text. Mm. So there's just a lot going on here in the background. And I think as a modern audience, we really lose that um, because we don't live these lives, right? We don't live in a, you know, I mean, some people might think our leaders are God, <laughs> but uh, we don't generally hold that <laughs> theological viewpoint, right? So but yeah, there's, there is a lot going on. There's a definite yeah. hierarchy that is being created here that we might miss. Um, and actually, some English translations here don't say that he's God to Pharaoh. Some say that he is like God to Pharaoh. Yeah. That's what I was just going to jump in with, because I'm looking at ESV, uh-huh. like God, in the uh, NIV, or NET, like God, NIV, like uh-huh. God, NRSV, like God, uh, in, in the Tanakh, in the role of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I guess which is a bit stronger, closer to it, but it's just Elohim. Right. It's not Kit Elohim right. or and, something like that. And there like is that. an earlier verse, I don't remember where it is at the moment, where it does say like God, but that's mm-hmm. dropped here where it's actually effective, right? Mm-hmm. And so, that is a difference. Mm-hmm. And then you'd see it in the Septuagint is really uncomfortable about this. Um, so, it wants Moses to be divine, but not at the same time. <laughs> And so that was actually a spinoff article that I did was how the Septuagint handles this, because it really is like its own creature when it comes to how it deals with the problem of Moses's mouth. Uh, but this problem of his mouth is always uncomfortable for interpreters. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be so pompous as to say that I solved it once and for all, um, you know, to however many thousand years mm-hmm. later. But uh, I hope I at least contributed to the conversation, right, by opening something, a new possibility. Yeah. I, I would have one it's a really interesting suggestion, and and I often find that the more you study scripture and you read over these kind of like obscure, weird things that you don't really realize they're weird until you drill down on them, that's sort of where like some of the most important elements right. are, whether you know, like Genesis six or you know an element like this, or a little bit earlier you have the the uncircumcised yeah, bridegroom what of a weird blood thing. and all that. What a weird thing, and it's it's interesting to. To, to delve into this, like one like implication is to you could you could argue is the Elohim um, one of these other divine beings or is it you know Yahweh Himself? And that's another thing to even think about. 
What I find to be so important about this theory is that it explains so much about what happens next in the story. Like if mm -hmm. I'd almost say like, if you listener thinking this, like am I tuning into biblical world? This sounds bizarre. Moses is an idol. I don't understand what y'all are talking about. What make, what happens next becomes much more explainable if you have this concept. And so what I, what, what I'm going to do is basically ask you a question like this. Was Michelangelo right about portraying Moses with horns? If you've been to and seen his famous uh, statue of, of, of Moses, he clearly has a couple of <laughs> horns sticking up. So can you push us forward as we, uh, you know, in this, in this podcast, push us forward into how this concept of Moses as an idol makes a good deal of sense of the golden calf episode and things that we have later on in the narrative. Yeah. So that was um, one of the reasons why this project wouldn't leave me alone. Right. Because once I saw this happening uh, in Exodus six and into seven, I started seeing it at, like everywhere as a, a way to help explain some of the oddities about Moses's existence, because it isn't enough that Moses is God to Pharaoh because that's just one little historical moment in the span of his 40 years of leadership. What this really works toward is life in the tabernacle. So it's for the last 38 years or so of his life, that's actually where he ministers. And so the, his initiation into this idol-like status is really with that in mind, because he is the mediator between divinity and humanity. And that's something about idols that people don't really realize. The, the, the actual idol, like, yes, it's divine and it's a god on its own, but there's a whole, like, mystical metaphysics there that is, even in Babylonian thought, like, hard to understand and on purpose, right? And so you kind mm -hmm. of have that put onto Moses as well, where he's this mysterious figure that kind of bounces back and forth between realms. And, and he's never really home in either. And so... But I think the ancient Israelites actually recognize that because if you read the story and you open up to the golden calf, which starts in Exodus 32, if you read those first few verses closely, what you see is that when Moses disappears on Mount Sinai and they don't know what's happened to him, their thought is not to replace him with Aaron, which we would think would make sense. Their thought is to replace him with a golden calf. And they say, like, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Like, that's the statement that's used there. And so, obviously, that goes awry because that's, that was the wrong thing to do, right? But they don't know that yet because Moses hasn't come down the mountain yet. Um, and so, but that's their instinct. So, they're seeing him in this role. And that also explains, that also explains Aaron's role as the prophet of mm -hmm. Moses, who's, you know, God, and now he's also now the prophet of this golden calf. It explains his, he's not going upward, he's just, you know, changing right. his Right, and he's, he seems to be fine with that. I thought that was so insightful because, you know, back to Exodus 32, 1, the, the people gather together and they say, rise up, make an Elohim for us who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So it's, I, I had never read that as a response, as the golden calf has a response to the disappearance of Moses specifically. I mean, obviously I did in the sense that like he's gone now they have to do something, but I always thought in terms of needing a, a clear instantiation of Yahweh among them. Now, what do you do with like the fact that they hold a festival to Yahweh around this calf? So I think that's where I think they see the calf as replacing Moses. I don't think they think Yahweh has gone away because if, if the theophany is proof of anything, it's that he's still on that mountain, right? And so, but they need that mediator mm -hmm. to know what mm -hmm. to do because otherwise they're just sitting mm -hmm. there. So they're, they're kind of getting impatient with that. And then when Yahweh later reintroduces Moses, he uses the same language that the people use here to say, these are your gods. And so there really is that sort of linguistic connection where he's like, nope, actually Moses is yeah, your God. He's the one that brought you out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, the whole scene ends when, you know, Moses, he goes back up the mountain because he's very upset. Um, I think that's why he's so upset, because he's, he's, he's taking it personally. Um, and he does a lot of things there without consulting with Yahweh. Uh, he kills or has like, I think it's 3,000 people killed. He grinds the statue to dust, mixes it with water and makes them drink it. 
like internalizing their indiscretion, right? That's a lot of time to be angry, right? That's a lot of time to talk yourself out of things <laughs> uh, and to calm down. But he doesn't that entire time, right? You would think that as you're grinding metal, you would kind of like come to your senses, but he, he doesn't, right? Um, so he's livid. And so he, he goes back up the mountain and asks for intercession and, and he gets it. But when he comes down, that's when he has these horns. Most translations have rays of light or something about light, but linguistically, it's far more likely actually to be horns. So that image, I think, is important. Again, um, if you were to take it out of context, that's a really uncomfortable image, right? But if you look at it in context, this is at the end of this essential fight against a golden calf. And what you have is Moses coming down as a kind of mature bull of a, of a man, right? Um, with all of the oddness that comes with that. Amir bull. Right? And so, um, so there's a lot going on with bull imagery here uh, in the entire story. And bull imagery is incredibly important in the ancient world. We know this you know, archaeologically. We know it textually. Um, it's probably the most used image for a divine male figure. And so... It's no wonder that that would happen, right? But there is some ambiguity. There is some room for it to be like light or rays of light. But the word used there, uh, Karen, is in its dual form. So it's like it's either two horns or it's like two lights, right? Um, and you do see this interpreted both ways artistically yeah. throughout history. Um, so there's an ambiguity there as well. And, and kind of like all three options work um, in comparison to like ancient Near Eastern art because that's just they all kind of work together as symbols. Yeah, I would say like if you're if you're thinking about this from you know, like your initial thesis, if we're just following you all the way through, I think a good point of comparison is when you're reading in the book of Daniel and you read about, you know, various beasts coming out of the sea with horns, people may be thinking of like rhinoceroses right. and things like that. It's clearly Mesopotamian, the the halo horn that has, you know, two or three levels of of crown with horns attached to it, which is of course tied to the bull, but the the multiplication of these horns shows their shows their power and strength, and that's what Daniel's alluding to. But if if your thesis is right, you could even bring that in as part of the concept of you know an idol is you know representation of Marduk uh, or these other entities in Mesopotamia are going to have this mm -hmm. type of halo crown, and and so maybe it, it maybe um, again it's not physical in the sense that it's etched onto his head or maybe it is uh like michelangelo did but it's it's that concept that you see as you as you pointed out you can see cross-culturally throughout the ancient near east um and it's <laughs> i mean i'm just visualizing in my head and how the original author wanted us to visualize that you know it has a mm -hmm. wide variety of you know what's on his head what's going on and maybe that kind of mystical element is kind right. of the point and cool. um and also within the Bible, like Yahweh is described several times as being a bull and as having horns. And even his anger is, you know, the idiom for anger is the heat of his nostril. So you think of you know pulling that as mm. like it's a raging bull imagery. Um and it's it's throughout mm. the Bible. And so even within the Bible it works because what I think is happening there, and whether you read it as metaphorical or not, what I think is happening is it's drawing an analogy between Moses and the thing he represents, which is Yahweh. What is also interesting about this is that if you continue reading that pericope, which is uh, Exodus 34, 29 through 35, the people actually, when they first see him, they like run away. And then they have to like kind of slowly come back. And he um, wears a veil over his face whenever he is around humans. And he only ever takes it off when he's in conversation with Yahweh. And I think that's really interesting part of this as well, because it really shows that whatever his life is now, it is not what we would consider a normal life of a leader. He's completely alienated from his people in that way. Even though he is among them, he's always like kind of working with them. They can never even see his face anymore. Um, he can only fully be revealed with Yahweh. And the implications are when he's most of the time from here on out talking with Yahweh, it's in this throne tent where you go into God's throne, which has no idol or image of God. And he's in that place. I mean, the thing that's really odd about the tabernacle is it's missing 
the you know the thing that temples and tabernacles have, which is was the idol. And so this adds in an element that, if you're right, would be missing in that. In that Moses is, uh, if he is the image of of Yahweh, at least incarnate in in his lifetime, that really makes this very interesting. And I would say, you know, just in the bigger picture, and we don't have time to go into this, but it also probably tells us a little bit about if we go all the way back to what it even means to be made you know, in the image of God and how this whole concept works. And so I think that's what is so fascinating about this is it it not only helps us understand this immediate story a bit better because we're looking closer at the the sources from the ancient Near East and Israel's reception of them and how they would have applied them, but it then causes us to look at the wider story and how what the implications are. And then even beyond that, to look at a text which is probably incorporated at the same time, uh, in, in Genesis to, to see, okay, if, if this is true, what does this say about male and female humanity made in the image of God and in kind of a similar, a similar environment? So I, I just find this to be such an interesting thesis that shouldn't go away. It's something we should pay close attention to and uh, look at closely. Matt, you had something to say. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, I was, I was thinking like some people are going to hear this and think, oh my goodness, Moses is a god. In this story, what does that do to, is that like a threat to Yahweh's supremacy? How do you see the coordination of the the story's claims about Yahweh and Yahweh's supremacy? And now we've got another Elohim in the picture. That's a lot right there. Um, (laughs) So I'll try to address uh, some of the things that you guys asked. Um, So I do think that ultimately this this whole idol business, um, again, is looking forward to the tabernacle. And exactly what you brought up, Chris, that mm. the tabernacle and then later the temple is is an idol-less place. And so I think what Moses is doing here is, and he's functioning that way. And what I mean by that is that, well, first of all, there are indications in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers that he goes into the Holy of Holies and that that's where he converses with Yahweh. Um, so you think that's where an idol would normally be. It's not there in the tabernacle or temple. And so Moses is effectively going in and being that. And that's a a difference as well, because he is not, there isn't a heavy ritual around him that we know of. Um, He is human, right? And so he eventually dies, which means that this is a temporary thing that is happening with Moses. Um, And that the revelation or whatever he receives from Yahweh in those exchanges, that's it, right? Like that's not going to happen again. Um, and so that is very important that he is the right kind of entity to be doing this. And so I think that ultimately is is where the analogy is really helpful because if you understand the daily life of idols, that is precisely what they're doing. There is a huge importance on the divine word. Mm-hmm. That being said, the the idol and the deity are always considered kind of one and the same. Um, so the best analogy I've thought of for thinking about idols is that it's kind of like a satellite system, right? So you have like the deities all over the place, right? But they, they're all connected through, I don't know, waves or whatever that science is. But the idol is kind of the, the receptor on earth. And so it is very much hmm. that, is very much a deity, but it is not like the only manifestation of that deity. Um, it is part of that deity, or like an extension maybe. So... If we think of Moses as an Elohim or as Elohim, uh, that doesn't mean he's in competition with Yahweh. Um, that actually means that he is he's the satellite for Yahweh, right? And so he's taking Yahweh's signal, essentially translating it, doing whatever satellites do and kind of bouncing it back to the human community. And he's, he's treated as an odd fellow because of that, right? Um, and so... And to kind of go where where Chris asked about Genesis and being made in the image of God, uh, I know there's something he's uh, asking there that he's not telling you. Um, So there's language in Genesis 1 um, when it talks about uh, when Yahweh says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Those are both terms that are related to Mesopotamian terms related to idols and images of divine things. Um, and I actually have an unpo- a forthcoming essay on how idols help us understand that passage. Um, and there's a related book that um, mm. I've yet to, to dive into. But I think we're essentially, yeah, we'll, we'll save, save it, it for, for later. 
But essentially, I think the gist is that um, in Genesis 1, we're all basically supposed to be kind of like Moses. We're supposed to be mediators between mm. the divine and the rest of the planet. So that can send into ecological stuff that we don't have wow. time to talk to, through now. Um, but you can see where I'm going into I, ecology right, with new projects. <laughs> yeah, I can see where you're going. So I, I took it all the way back uh -huh. to the beginning. And then I think, though, if we, could, if we take this even further beyond, and I know we're running up against mm -hmm. time here, but the death of Moses, like, you know, the, the, the mystery surrounding his own death, the hiding of his body, the mm -hmm. implication that, and, and, that he wasn't decayed over when he's mm -hmm. 120, uh, or even the fact that when he strikes a rock, it works. And even when he strikes a rock, when he's told not to, it still mm -hmm. works that water the water flows out it shows like the impulsiveness of yeah he's he's prepared in a way that works with with Yahweh as as the you know his image bearer as his as his uh, as his idol but he still has his own uh will and so i just think like even though um you mentioned earlier like you know the septuagint does not feel comfortable and maybe wouldn't have had the same interpretation mm -hmm. still though some of these things make it through into second temple interpretation you know, that, that we have similar characters like Moses and Elijah appearing at Transfiguration who had similar experiences. One is, you know, the chariot of Israel who has, you know, is the bearer of Yahweh's power and the other. So it's, it's just very interesting. And that's why, you know, it makes me really excited for how this can work with explaining some of these more obscure elements in the story, but also seeing that even though they may not have understood like if the the Jews who are in Mesopotamia didn't understand the Marduk ritual, uh, and yet they brought it over and explained Moses in this way, how the power of that explanation ha affected the way we read the story. But also, even though they didn't maybe understand what the horns were, it it still affected how we how the story was told, but also received in ways that still make pretty good sense um, mm. because it gets translated all the way into something like the Transfiguration. With Jesus, so anyway, I'm just I'm t I'm mainly reflecting on how inserting your really interesting, cool thesis can impact like this big character. I mean, Moses. It's it's in the Old Testament. It's hard to get bigger than that. And then how that's reflected in in uh, throughout the Second Temple and according, uh, especially the New Testament. So, really fascinating stuff. Thank you. And um, I have to say, his his death, I think, is one of the more moving pieces of scripture because if you think through it and spend like do a really slow reading of it and think about his life, like and what it entailed for him to be in service to this deity. Mm. Um, just the idea of, you know, the, the deity leading him up to where he can see the promised land. And, you know, Moses just kind of dies um, in the presence of Yahweh. <laughs> and how beautiful is that man? Like this one guy that he could be himself with for his entire life. You know, he finally comes to maturation under Yahweh's wing mm spends 38 years doing this tabernacle stuff where he can only fully be himself in there um, with that one entity, right? Um, being alien to all of the humans around him, um, but yet have being connected to them at the same mm -hmm. time. And, and just to have this, this beautiful death, right? I mean, it doesn't get any more beautiful than a mountaintop with Yahweh by your side. Um, and then it's not even quite clear who buries him um, because the place is unknown. Um, there's maybe some allusion to the idea that maybe even Yahweh buries him. Um, which is of course a very tender thing to do. So it's just it's it's full of like, even though it's it's punishment, right? Even though like it's like he's not allowed to go into the land, um, it still has probably the most beauty to it as it possibly could. Uh, it's like the best punishment on earth, right? To have to die with Yahweh by your side. So it's really interesting you you, you say that because one of the the hot takes in the Second Temple period of where the Ark of the Covenant is buried is in a cave on Mount Nebo <laughs> where Moses died. So, I mean, there, there's there, there, that, like that's in second uh -huh. Maccabees. Like they're, they're thinking that that's, they're trying to bring it back. Cause there's something mysterious that happened mm. at mm. that moment in time. Right. And, and the fact that he can't, we don't know where he's buried, I think is really important because it means that he can't be venerated. Mm. Right. There's no place to go to mm. praise Moses for doing this. And so I think that's one of the really important it's a parallel to the Mesopotamian life of idols because idols, we're not clear what this means, but they actually can die. Um, they can be broken. They can be injured. Like they can, they can effectively die. And 
the way that they're buried is that they're they're essentially wrapped up properly and ceremoniously dropped in the river. So technically their burial is not known either because who knows what happens to something once you drop it in a river. Um, and so there's a parallel though, but I think it's also an important difference just that, as you mentioned, Moses has free will. He is completely and utterly human this entire time. Um, he does he does things that are horrible, honestly. Um, he does things that are beyond belief um, and he uses words, right? Like there's no need for an interpreter, uh, at least as far as we know, because Aaron kind of fizzles out. He just, he's very human and that is also emphasized in the text. And so as much as I talk about him as idol, um, at the very end, I kind of try to bring that back home um, that there are important differences, right? And I think that has a lot to do with the messages that he receives. I think it's really important to keep in mind that the result of Moses's life in terms of tradition um, are the words that he gave, right? Um, and that eventually get encoded. And so that I think is where it's important because ultimately it's, yes, it's looking to the tabernacle, but the result of his life in the tabernacle is what we would consider Torah. And so effectively this becomes an argument for Torah because it's a once and forever thing. And only one special kind of guy could do this. Yeah, well, Amy, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this crossover episode mm -hmm. with OnScript and Biblical World Podcasts. Uh, Chris, it's been fun uh, co-hosting with you. And uh, I encourage people to check out Amy's book, Moses Among the Idols, Mediators of the Divine in the Ancient Near East. So thanks so much, Amy. Thank you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate. 